I'm going to do a quick recap just to where we've been here. This is the fourth letter in as we go through the series here. And I just gave a few, like a one-sentence snapshot of a few of these as, as they went through. I feel like Ephesus really, God's message was that he's concerned about our heart. He's concerned, um, is it given totally over to him? Are we locked in with him and our heart like a bride would be to a husband? Or are we kind of off flirting with other things like the world or sin or ourselves? Smyrna really dealt with that idea that God wants us to endure hardship and suffering well as Christians, that we bear Christ's name, and that he had a plan for how the church would carry that out. Pergamum, last week, I didn't actually hear Greg's message, but because I was on the other side of town there, but um, really I think one of the themes there is just that the church was being swayed by false doctrine, by false teaching, going after sin in some areas. And Thyatira is the one we're going to look at today. And if I just had a one-sentence description, it's just that God's concerned about our deeds. Not just our heart, but what we're doing. So let's, let's read this chapter together. And just be thinking about that as our one-sentence snapshot. It should be on your screen there. Or you can open up a Bible if you have one to Revelation 2, starting in verse 18. It says, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this, I know your deeds, and your love, and faith, and service, and perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray, so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, and she did not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. But I say to you, the rest who who are in Thyatira, who did not hold to this teaching, and who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, I will give authority over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So as this letter starts, there's some imagery of Jesus that's a little um, poetic or out there that I think just sets the tone for the whole chapter and really what he's getting at in this letter. It says his eyes are like a flame of fire. And this just means that his eyes pierce through and see what we do. Nothing is hidden in the shadows or beyond his vision. Then it says his feet are like bronze. And this, I think, just speaks to his coming and his judgment. Like the footsteps of an army marching in unison, as the sound is of an inevitable 
It's a judgment of an army coming. And that sound of an army can be encouraging or terrifying depending on whether it's an ally or an enemy. But the feet tell of what's coming with an army. And so it is with Jesus. In this letter, John lays out God's heart for our actions and our deeds, like I said. Again, we're like that first letter to Ephesus dealt with the heart. In this chapter, he really calls for our actions and deeds, what we're doing for God to match up with a heart devoted to him. And Jesus starts commending them for a few things, for their deeds, for their love, for their faith, for their service, for their perseverance. And that's a great list to start out there. Uh, They were accomplishing good things. They were doing a lot for God. And it even goes a step further and Jesus commends them and says, your deeds of late are even greater than they were at first. You're growing. And that's the first blank on there is that we need to emulate that. It's that we need to be growing in deeds of faith. I read that and I'm personally challenged. Um, When we first become Christians, we tend to define the Christian life by a new life we're living out, by the newness of the Christian life. We're leaving an old life behind and we're excited about this new life with God and living a changed life and living out the kingdom of God. And we tend to define our life by where we're going, by who's God, who God is making us and the life we have ahead with him. I think as we've been Christians a little longer, we can have this tendency to start defining the Christian life more in terms of the past than in the present or the future. I can look back on times as a college student or as a single, some of the things, uh, some of the memories I have serving the Lord in those times. I I can look back and go, in some ways I feel like I was more zealous and in more faith and accomplishing more through those periods. And I think it's easy to start defining the Christian life in terms of the past and how that shapes right now, how I stepped out of the boat and tried things then and how it might shape my life now. And God used that time, God uses that time in our life. But I read this, chapter that God has to the church and it challenges me just thinking how are my deeds of late I think God wants us to approach our faith in terms of what are we applying fresh faith for today and fresh faith for the future and that's your next blank on the sheet that God wants us to apply faith for the present and the future rather than just the past You know, one example I was thinking of, it's been a blessing to team up with Dennis over the past few years and get to know him more personally. He's, if you don't know him, he's a pastor that's more focused down in our south location. Um, And I've just really been encouraged by his life and how uh, just his character in this area really stuck out to me as I got to know him of applying faith towards the future. If you don't know him, he was really instrumental in starting our movement of churches and applying faith and starting a number of churches throughout the country and a church down in Parker and um, has been instrumental in this church. And it, uh, it really stuck out to me that he wasn't just resting on that, but when we get together for pastor's meetings, just hear about what was going on in his week, it seemed like he always had a person on campus he was trying to reach out for, a specific name of the next person he was sharing with, or he had a prayer for his family, just something specific in that week. And he's been so excited just in trusting God for this next season of going to two locations. And I saw that heart just of, really defining his faith in terms of what am I trusting God for today as we come together. Um, And that really encouraged me and I think it's something I can grow in as I saw that there. Um, And as we've been praying about this two locations, um, if you don't know, if you're new with us, we just multiplied to a second location in the Franktown Parker area about a month ago. 
And it's been good for me just to have a tangible step, just that we're, that I'm, I'm looking to God for and trusting him and walking into. And I think it's good for us as a church just to have a tangible faith step we're really trusting God for together. You know, I think we've had seasons at the firehouse where we applied a lot of faith in the past that really stretched us. I think in terms of a church planning team coming down here was a real stretch of faith for a few, a few left that took that step. I think this building project to come into this building was a step of faith as we were kind of nomads over Denver and we, we undertook this building that was beyond the money we saw, it was beyond the, the time we had, it was beyond the work we did and we trusted God to move in here. And then a lot of people I think took steps of faith as far as a, a few churches merging in with us from the north side of town there and the south side and we came together. And then as I see it, it, it felt like personally there was kind of a comfortable season where it was good to be together, it was a blessing, we had great fellowship, but there was plenty of people around to serve and talk to a guest that walked in the door and run various ministries. And so much so I felt like personally I could be in an idle season, I could come into church kind of cold or lukewarm and there's a good chance someone else would step up, someone else would talk to the guest, the church would continue to grow, someone else would pick up the slack. And I sense that as we multiplied to two locations, it's forced us all to apply a little more faith than we had been in the past. I know a lot of you have been stepping up and serving in band rotations, um, in teaching. We've had to do a little more. I think Greg's had to be on for about two months straight. It's a little change for him. We've had to, to step up in a number of those areas. And I believe there's a significant faith step we took together to walk into this as it relates to launching that second location. I also think there's a sense that God wants us each to be personally engaging with what are those next faith steps he has for us in our future. I have a few questions for you to ponder on this topic just to get us thinking about how we can be growing together and looking to the future. It's the next few blanks on your sheet. The first question is, what am I in faith for today? And the second is, does God have a next faith step that he is calling me into and the third's kind of related there we'll just go through them but it says are my deeds of faith greater now than in the past in essence it's just what does God want for me to continue to grow in deed and in faith this year this month and my works and that our works together would be greater now than they were in the past for the glory of God I'm reminded of the parable of the widow bothering the unrighteous judge in Luke 18.8. If you're familiar with it, she just was pestering him over until she got what she wanted from this judge. And, and Jesus told it as a way just to remind us of, you should take that spirit of, of bringing your prayers, of being persistent with God, of continuing to ask. And he asked a question at the end of that parable, parable that said, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on all the earth? Um, modeled after that example of the lady that was just pestering that unrighteous judge would he find that faith in us just to be in prayer and as I think about it I, I think when he comes in that day will he find us still trusting him for something big will he find us trusting him for something at all and I've been chewing on this I felt like specifically I needed to apply more faith as it comes to sharing the gospel I think in some ways I've led some people to Christ in the past and been very active in that through seasons, but God was putting it on my heart to be praying for people I could be sharing with right now. And there's a new couple that's been coming to church over the last four or five months, 
that we've developed some friendship with and had a meal or two with and, and befriended. Uh, and God really put it on my heart that um, we just need to engage with taking that step of sharing the gospel with them, of, of going out of our comfort zone and just sharing truth about Jesus with them. It's a really small step, but I think it also defines something tangible God has right there for us to walk into and to trust him for that's not, that's not looking at the past and what we've done in some other season, but just saying, God, what do you have for us right now that you want us to engage with and, and trust you for and walk into? So I'd encourage you to be just searching your heart and praying if God has something like that for you. And like many of these letters, uh, it kind of moves in the middle of there uh, as he has some commendation for good things and good works. And it moves over into the section of warning um, or encouragement related to sin or something that needed to grow in the church. And the warning that Jesus has for this church is really just about tolerating sin tolerating the sin of Jezebel, to be specific. Um, I think it's funny, I was thinking about this location, and I'm like, so we have the church here, and there's a restaurant across the street named Jezebel's, if you haven't noticed. It's <laughs> kind of ironic. I, I think there's maybe a different application than tolerating a restaurant called that, but it is funny <laughs> for us. You can't ignore it. But the warning, I think, that Jesus has is just about that tolerating her sin. And Jesus just gets done commending their deeds and their faith and their continual growth in those things. And then he holds against them as their tolerance of sin and false prophecy in the church. And there's some overlap with last week's letter, if you were here. Um, in that letter, Jesus warns of being swayed by false prophecy and teaching and following after sin. In this one, I really think he's just getting at, are you going to tolerate people that are living that lifestyle in my church? And you're going to let them sway other people into that lifestyle. And are you going to let people call themselves Christians and say, I'm a Christian, I'm in the church, and live a life of sin or contradiction to what they're calling themselves in the church? And so that's the next blank there, is that God wants the church to grow in obedience rather than tolerance of sin. And that's a little countercultural right now. But I want to review a few passages of scripture that the church may not have been applying to this situation that I think we can learn from and apply in our church. Uh, and just help us view this, this passage in light of some other clear passages that might shed light. The first is in 1 Corinthians 5. should be up on the slide there. But I think the Corinthians church was in a very similar situation. They had immorality in the church and people were allowed to just kind of keep living in it and be in the church. Uh, verse, starting in verse 1 there, it says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not even tolerated among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And are you arrogant? Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. I'll skip down to verse 9 on there. It says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters since you would need to get out of the world but now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or an idolater, reviler, drunkard or swindler not to even eat with such a one for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside Purge the evil person from among you. 
So your blank is along those lines. It's that the scripture gave a standard of the church disappointing Christians who have sin that does not line up with the scripture. God says that someone that is a Christian and in your local church and is living a life compromised by sin to get involved. And look at one more passage in a, in a little bit that's even clearer on kind of that process. They might not have been living out, but the Corinthian church, as is, is, is described here, and I think the Thyatiran church were both in the same boat. They had someone in known sin in their fellowship that was allowed to continue in sin in the church and even sway others. So Paul does make a distinction in Corinthians here that this only applies to a Christian in the church that's living a life compromised by sin. So it does not mean you go out to the world and start proactively judging and wave a finger and call it everyone that might be in something that does not line up with the scripture. And it also doesn't mean that you can't come to church if your life is a little messy. Another one, God got a hold of my life. I became a Christian, accepted Christ in early high school, and then was kind of living a life that didn't match up for that for a few years. And I got invited into a church. Uh, it's a sister church up in Fort Collins when I went to college. And when I showed up, I'll admit my life was a little messy. Um, I, had, I was living this double life of coming to church Sunday and having some sin on the side. I, I had issues with alcohol as an alcoholic. My speech was not wholesome. I didn't honor parents. I had a lot of things just kind of going on there. But God started to get a hold of my life just to honor him and to change some things. And some brothers in the church really just wrapped their arms around me and helped me grow in those areas. And I think we all come into the church like that, that we have some things going on and, and we're working it out as we go. But I don't think that's really what this is talking about here. Um, I just read... In uh, Proverbs 14.4, last week in the one-year Bible, it says, without oxen, a stable is clean, but you need a strong ox for a large harvest. So as each of us come into the church, we're a little messy. We're like that oxen. takes a little bit to clean up after an animal. Um, but ultimately, that's what brings the harvest, is people coming into the church that are having changed lives, that are, might have a little mess in their life. That's how I came into the church. But this passage is really talking about if there's an established Christian in the church, has an area of sin that they're living out, get involved. And God has a holy standard about how his church should operate. We'll review one more section of scripture that's going to be up there that just talks about how the church can live this out. In Matthew 18, verses 15 through 18, it says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. If he does not listen... Take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So wherever there is sin that is seen, go and deal with it. Kind of what this is saying. Go share with your brother in private. If he does not change after that, bring a second person who sees the same thing. If there's no change after that, there's a period to get church leadership involved. And then if there's still no change after that, there's a final step of removal from fellowship. So the blank on your sheet is just, this involved a series of warnings followed by removal from fellowship. It was kind of that process. And I just share all this today to say... Again, that the church should be growing in its obedience to God and growing in the standard of holiness. And God wants the spotless bride in the church to be offered to him. And God laid out the standard of how we should live that out in the church. 
But this is a, I will admit this is a rare process to walk all the way down that road. Sharing a fence that someone has or sharing a scripture someone might not be living out is, is common. It happens to all of us. It happens to pastors. It hap- we all fall short of God's standards. We're sharing that. But it gets a little more rare to walk all the way up that chain. And I think I can count on my fingers the number of times we walked all the way through that process in the last 10 years of the firehouse. But it is critical that God keeps his church to a standard and protects the flock from people that might lead them astray. But I don't want us to gloss over this passage just saying, that's how the church lives that out, go deal with it, pastors, that's great. But I think God wants us to realize that we each need to be sober-minded about sin in our life as it relates to these passages and God's standard for the church. So the next blank on your sheet asks the question, just to consider more on a personal level. Do we live a life of tolerance, coddling, or hiding sin? Because I think we can have a similar situation in our own life. And most of it looks good. We, most of it lines up with God's word. We can clean up. We can look good on a Sunday and put on the right shirt. But there's an area of sin hiding behind the scenes. And it's kind of like a disease, such as AIDS or cancer, that starts rotting the body. Or termites in a house. It can corrupt our, own li- our whole lives. You can probably pretend you don't have termites for a spell. Um, you can ignore it. You can know about it and not do anything about it. You can get by for a period. But eventually your house will start to collapse. The structure will go in. And it will be beyond repair in the house if you let them do enough damage. And that's how it is with sin. You could ignore it for a spell and you might be able to hide it. But eventually it will collapse the foundation of your character and your life. To a point that it will ruin it. First Peter 5.8 says, Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. The devil looks to ruin your life, our lives, by leading us into sin. So just be sober-minded today about that end result of sin. It can be so deceiving We think we have control over it, that we can hide it, that it's contained, it's compartmentalized, it can't get out, but it will grow and in the end ruin our lives. It's kind of like adopting a baby lion. You could probably tame it for a period, you could probably keep it, it's cute, you could get it in a cage, but eventually it will be a big enough animal that it would destroy you if you tried to keep it in your home. So it is with sin, if you tried to just keep it in, it will grow to where you can't control The next blank on your sheet there is to be transparent with it. John 3.21 says, But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Bringing our sin into the light involves admitting and confessing our sin to God and getting real about it with other people. I ask you just beware of hidden sin and its effect on your life. God wants us to bring it into the light. Otherwise, God will shed a spotlight on it if we don't do it ourselves after a spell. Just like the termites, not, t- not telling someone about it or ignoring it doesn't make it go away. It just delays and makes the issue worse later on. I encourage you, if there is something in your life, tell someone about it that can help you and confess to God um, so you can take those steps to exterminate it and not just put off a bigger problem. The next point under tolerating sin in our lives is to be vigilant in getting rid of it. In Matthew 18, 8 through 9, Jesus says this, referring to sin in our lives. 
So if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better to enter eternal life with only one hand or one foot than to be thrown into the eternal fire with both of your hands and feet. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better to enter eternal life with only one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fires of hell. That reads a little gruesomely. But Jesus is telling us, take steps as it relates to sin that may hurt to get rid of it. We may need to do something that hurts us financially or is embarrassing or inconvenient to get serious about sin in our lives. The last blank on there is to repent. Verse 21 from this passage in Revelation reads, I gave her time to repent, but she did not want to turn away from her immorality. God gives us time and opportunities to repent of our sin, but sometimes we have to take that step and change our mind and repent of things in our life. We have to tell God there is a sin area destroying us. We can't handle it on our own anymore. And parts of those steps of repentance involves kind of those steps above of being transparent and sober and vigilant and getting it out of our lives. If we're true in it, God will grant victory in those areas. As I look at my own life, one area I tolerated and coddled for years was the area of alcohol. For me, it was like one drink would just turn into four to six drinks or more in a night. I had a little bit of transparency in my life. I knew it didn't honor God, so I would occasionally tell it to my small group leader or someone would notice it a little bit in my life. But I wasn't very transparent with it. There was a lot of hidden things in that area of my life. Um, I would often drink more than lost people was reaching out to if I was in a bar situation or party situation. My witness as a Christian was severely limited because I just didn't have character in this area. And uh, I had people around me that I was trying to reach out to that mentioned to me that it really saw a problem in my life as it related to alcohol, that I might need help, it might be something I couldn't control. And I would try to set limits on my own, just kind of set up some system to get over at my own strength, like only have two drinks in a night or three drinks in a night and, and try to control it and I could do it. And I just tried to hold on to some little system I could do, but it just never worked. I kept failing in that area and I didn't see any real change or victory in my life over a period of years. And I remember reading through that passage in Matthew when it talked about plucking out your eye if it causes you to sin. And I just started seriously praying but maybe the only way to get victory in this area of my life was to take an extreme step like that. Um, I wasn't very excited about it, so that was a period of time just praying about that and chewing on a little bit that I felt like God's spirit was just convicting me. And after resisting a while, I finally gave in and I decided to stop drinking alcohol completely as a step kind of like that. And so I stopped and I got accountability with men in my life and, and God gave me real victory after that. It's been over 10 years since I had a drink and God's Uh, changed my life in that area. I know it's an extreme step, but I think there's some areas God might want us to get serious about sin in our lives. I I don't know the difference. It's like some sin, we can read a verse and obey it and change, and it just changes in our life and we don't look back. And there's some things in our life that God puts there that it takes dramatic steps just to change and to get serious and sober about, and then we might need to change in our lives. I'd I'd just uh, encourage you to be sober-minded and just pray and ask God, is there anything that I may need to take a serious step with that I might need to do something 
um, extreme to take a step towards obedience that it wouldn't destroy me, especially in light of God's standard for the church and how he talks about how he'll play that out if we don't take those steps. So the last section in this chapter, shift gears here, is just, it talks about God repaying us for our deeds. Verse 23 says, And I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the hearts and minds, and I will give to each according to your deeds. So God will eventually pay us back for all of our deeds. And again, like I mentioned at the start, that can either be a great or a dreadful thing. The flaming eyes of Jesus have seen through and have seen everything we've done. And the bronze feet of Jesus are marching towards his return. The next two blanks I'll just say together here. But as to those in sin, a judgment is coming. And to the Christian in faith, a reward is coming. Judgment and reward come. And Jesus is coming back. And he will hand out one of those two things to everyone on earth. Inherently, I think we know that. But we don't always live like the eyes of Jesus are always on us. Um, I have two daughters. One of them is, my older one is two years old. And we have a video monitor at their room at home. Mostly to watch them when it's time to go to bed and see what they're doing. My two-year-old Phoebe likes to be very sneaky in bed. She's, She's good at being sneaky. And so eventually when we put her to bed, she'll quietly stand up. And she'll play with toys and pull them into bed. Being a girl, she can reach her shoes and pull those into bed. I don't know how that's fun, but I'm male. I think it's fun. She'll pull shoes into bed. There's a little video button she can hit on the sound machine to see sheep on the ceiling and just play. And inherently she knows we have a video. She talks about this camera being in there and asks us if we can see her. But every time we walk in the room because she snuck a toy into bed, she acts shocked And she darts to her pillow and wonders how on earth we knew when we come in to discipline her. She's so sneaky. She's so quiet. How could we ever have known? I think we're a little like that with God. I think we know that he's going to judge all of our deeds. We know he sees everything we do. But I think we're going to be a little shocked when Jesus calls into account every deed of our life. Depending on what our life was like, we might want to dart back to the pillow or we might be looking forward to that. I don't know where you're at today or what emotion that invokes. But God sees all of our deeds. And if you're spiritually seeking or not sure where you stand with Jesus this morning, I just want to share a few verses of you with you. God sees each of us. He sees all of our sin. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've We've each sinned, and the flaming eyes of Jesus sees each of our sin. Even if we're not sure that God is real or Jesus was real or we're choosing to ignore him and living a life apart from him, he sees it all. And on the theme of those bronze feet and the coming judgment, Jesus doesn't have a lot of encouraging things to say if we're in sin and we're living a life apart from him. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. And in 2 Thessalonians 1, 7-9, It says, Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. 
That's really heavy stuff. The first time I heard this message, it wasn't a huge shock to me in some sense. It can, rather, it confirmed my worst fears. I knew that I wasn't good. I knew that I had sin. I knew I had lust and anger and I'd stolen and I didn't do much to obey my parents and honor them from the Ten Commandments there. And I was terrified that I would end up in hell for it. And when I heard that message, it was like, oh, I was right. There is that penalty for my sin. And if you're seeking this morning or fear that that might describe where you sit with Jesus today, I also want to share that Jesus threw us a life raft in the middle of drowning in our sin. Jesus said in John 10.10, I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. And in Romans 6.23, we read the first half of that verse about destruction earlier, but it says that the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. But to accept that gift, there's intentional steps that need to be taken to right your relationship with God and move from the destruction or punishment that might be coming with Jesus to that great reward that it talks about at the end of the chapter. And if this is something you're still sorting out, I really encourage you to find, find me or Greg after the service or someone at the greeting table or a friend you know. Um, we'd be happy to go into more detail about this gift that Jesus offers and how we can move from that destruction when Jesus returns to related to a reward or eternal life. I don't have time to go into all that today, but I just encourage you to sort that out and not ignore it like termites and hope it'll go away, but sort out where your standing is with God today. So the last few verses I alluded to just really talk about a Christian finishing their life strong. Starting in verse 26, it says, To all who are victorious, who obey me to the very end, to them I will give authority over all the nations. They will rule the nations with an iron rod and smash them like clay pots. They will have the same authority I receive from my Father, and I will also give them the morning star. And that star that they talk about that they will be given to is really just referring to Jesus. And that's the last blank on your handout there. To those who finish strong, the reward is Jesus. The reward is relationship and eternity with Jesus instead of that destruction we just talked about. And that reward infinitely pays back more than we deserve for any deeds that we ever have done. And we can look forward to an eternity of time with our our precious Savior and champion. Just a few verses to be thinking about on heaven. It's aren't on the slides, but... um, Revelation 21:23 speaks of heaven. John says, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illuminated it, and its lamp is the Lamb. Just God being there provides more beauty and illumination and the sun lighting up all of the creation. It's more beautiful to see Jesus in his glory than the sun rising up over the ocean. I don't know about you, but I love all those trips where you get to go out to the ocean to California or Hawaii or something. And I think my favorite thing to do is just to get up early and see the sun come up over the ocean. And you just see that red glare coming over the water. I don't know if there's anything like just seeing that on earth, just the brilliant sun on the ocean there. 
I think of that and just think somehow you're going to look at Jesus and it's more beautiful than seeing that. Just seeing Jesus in his face. And just being in the presence of God is beyond comprehension. And the description of Jesus even adds to that in Ephesians 2, 6, and 7, just of seeing Jesus. It says that he raised us up with him and is seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Jesus will give us the surpassing riches of his grace poured out on all his children for all eternity. Beyond just seeing him and seeing something of beauty, He's pouring out and giving of his grace, giving of his gifts for eternity. And I notice in the end of the chapter here, it says that the one who's rewarded is the one who keeps his deeds until the end. Keeps working in faith. I do believe that God wants our hearts to the end. That's what the letter to Ephesians spoke of. But the overflow of that, if God really have our hearts, is that we have deeds flowing out of us in faith until the end of our life. I don't know how many days I have left. It could be... 50 years, it could be 30 years, it could be a year, but I pray that Jesus would help me have deeds of faith that are alive right up until the end. And we live in a country that tells that the dream in life is to get as much money in your 401k as you can, so that when you hit 65, you can go play golf and travel and, and be in leisure and enjoy yourself. And there's nothing that might be a sin about some of those things other than that I don't think God's calling in our life is to want leisure and to, to stop and to stop working for the Lord. But he wants us to be in obedience to him and carrying out that mission up until the end. And there probably will be a retirement day for all of us if we live that long. But I don't think it's retirement from service to our Lord as much as a job, but just asking God, how would you use these years? How would you use me till the end? Um, it's just even changing what we're looking forward to, what we're hoping it isn't um, a golf course for the rest of our life. And I do just want to tie this back to the beginning as we close. I think that one of the keys to Jesus giving us this grace just to walk with him until the end of our life is to continue to grow and be in fresh faith for something today and just building on that for the rest of our lives, for today, for tomorrow, for a year, for 10 years to the end, that God would just continue to have us to look to the next steps together as a church in each of our lives, just looking, God, what's the next step you have for me? So to close, I just ask you once more to be praying this week about what does God want me to be actively in faith for now? And what steps might God want you to take to be growing in deeds rather than receding or stagnating? And if it did touch a nerve just thinking about eternity, if that's not something you sorted out, I do ask you just to to take that step, just to ask um, just someone to take you through some verses and truth about what Jesus has to say to us about eternity, about how we can know for sure we'd be going to heaven and a part of this rather than not. Let's pray. God, we do thank you for today. We thank you uh, just for this message you gave. There's encouragement in it and it's sobering all at once, God. I do pray that this would be a spotless bride offered to you in the church. And God, you would really help us as a church just be growing in deeds together, growing in faith. God, you wouldn't help us rest on a different season of the church. But God, really be giving us clear steps for the future, clear steps for today that we can trust you in, that we can pray in. God, that we'd be active. Um, I just pray that we continue to describe 
our church and you grow us in that. And you help each of us be sober in light of that today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.